Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 644 with my guest, Beth Ann Patrick. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Metal Illness Happy Hour. Maybe I should turn this into a horror podcast <laughs> as if there's not enough horror within the podcast already. I'm going to, I'm going to put that, uh, I'm going to put a pin in that as the, as they say, uh, want to welcome any new listeners, uh, thank the regular listeners, the part-time listeners, and thank you to those of you who, um, have, uh, stepped up and become monthly donors on Patreon or sending me donations um, through PayPal. It's really, really appreciated. Let's get to, uh, oh, before we do that, I just heard that uh, they're rebooting Dinner in a Movie, which is was a show I hosted from 1995 to 2011, co-hosted with some very nice people who are still my friends to this day. And uh, it's amazing. All of these, I suppose it's not surprising, but all these feelings immediately came up. And the first one was a feeling of left being left behind, you know, a feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm too old. But then there was also a feeling of relief, like, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm not getting the offer to be a part of the the reboot to be on air for the reboot because as much as I enjoyed and was grateful to have those years of being employed and working with really cool people, the stress that I put myself under and the, how hard I was on myself about the comedic choices I made, et cetera, et cetera, was <laughs> when the show went off the air, I was so relieved. I was so relieved, not financially, but creatively, it just felt like it had it had reached its end, and um, and I'm really interested to see what it's what it's going to look like. Um, yeah, I used to when we would be filming, um, there would be like for those of you that weren't familiar with the, what the show was, it was really a movie hosting show. the The movie uh, was the main thing, but when you would when there would be commercial breaks in the movie, before you would get to a commercial, you would see us for a minute or two minutes, maybe a half dozen times throughout the movie, uh, cooking in a kitchen, um, cooking a dish themed around the movie we were watching, cracking jokes, talking about movies, talking about food, um, busting each other's balls. And it was a lot of fun. It was mostly improvised, which I think is where a lot of that self-imposed pressure so we were we were kind of coming up with it as we were doing it, which I think gave it its flavor and made it um, something into something that people like. People to this day still tell me, you know, oh, I have such fond memories of watching that growing up as a kid. And every Friday night, my family we'd watch it, and uh, it makes me feel it makes me feel really good. So it's going to be exciting to to see what they what they do with the the format. Let's let's get into some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this was filled out by a person who calls themselves a woman who calls herself German couch potato with back pain. Now, now, if that doesn't paint a picture, I do not know what does. Uh, and I think we've read her surveys before. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm fucking stupid, annoying, incapable, weak, pathetic, uninteresting, invisible, untalented, 
painfully awkward, a waste of space, a loser, childish, destined to stay unhappy and lonely. Yeah, on, on, at first glance, you're like, well, that's horrible. But there's also a part of me that's like, you're a bit of a go-getter. You have the mean voice in your head is uh, very productive. So let's take let's take that as a victory. Now, in all seriousness, that that that's a lot. That is a lot. And I hope you can find nice things to say to yourself occasionally, like this next person, uh, Kristen. Some of the things you tell yourself about yourself: you can survive anything the world throws at you. And nothing can beat you. Wow. Look at Kristen showing off. Open up the show with a a fucking drop of the gauntlet. This is uh, also from the Voice in Your Head survey. And this is filled out by Victoria. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I am not my depression or anxiety. I suffer from them, but they do not make up who I am. They are a part of me, but they do not control me. Even in the darkest and deepest trenches, I find myself in the glimmer of light that is my soul. It can be a place for me to seek refuge. My past is my past. I've made mistakes. The embarrassment I feel when thinking about the things I've done is just a reminder that I've come out stronger and overall a better human than I once was. The things I went through do not make me a victim. Even in flashbacks, I know they are temporary and use them as a reminder of where I am now in the present. Despite all my physical flaws, I'm one hell of an amazing person. <laughs> Fuck Kristen, Victoria. You just picked up the gauntlet. I said, Kristen who? Thanks for that. God damn, that's, that's some, some recovery right there. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Scooter, and she asks, how do you get so empathetic and curious? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. That's a very nice compliment. And I don't, I don't know if I, if I were to venture a guess. I think the empathy, I think its roots were uh, in feeling like my mom when I was growing up was so fragile that... Uh, that I needed uh, to take care of her, to, to keep the family together, starting at like seven when she would talk to me like a therapist about how she couldn't stand my father and she wanted to leave and, and this and that. And obviously, you know, ultimately that's a damaging thing for a, for a person because you lose yourself. You, you don't even ask yourself what your needs are. Um, but I think, I think if, if, we can recover and start to get some tools to understand where I end and somebody else begins and that I can't control their pain. Um, it, it, I, can, I can let go of that need to make sure that everybody in the room is happy yet still be empathetic. I try. Uh, and, and, you know, don't get me wrong. There, there were years in my life, if not decades, where I was an insensitive, arrogant, uh, belittling prick. I could be nice, but there was a part of me that was so desperate for attention and validation, I would use people as the brunt of my jokes. Not to mention the, you know, being a, a philanderer 
and an objectifier and all the other words you, you want to add to it. So it's kind of hard <laughs> for me to, to take that in as if that is, um, I don't know, the totality of, of who I am. There's, there's, I think a lot of people, when someone compliments you, wants to immediately tell you, but here are all the things that are wrong with me. But I do believe I am an empathetic person. And I think, I don't know, I think I was maybe just born curious. Maybe it was a way of trying to figure out the world, figure out why I felt weird and different. Uh, I don't know, but I, I think curiosity is like the greatest gift to have because it makes life so much more interesting. But thank you, thank you for your, your nice uh, compliment. This is from the Fears survey, filled out by our friend, uh, the German couch potato. You know, she's, she's getting a lot done sitting there in her potato-y state on her German couch. I wish I could remember what uh, German for couch is. I took two years of, of German in college, and I, just, I remember, hello? And thank you. And please, uh, share something you fear. I fear being stuck forever in a life and a job I hate because I've been doing the same old shit for eight years now, even though I suffer so much. I'm too stupid and incompetent to get out of the situation, and I fear that a, quote, real, unquote, depression will be added to my chronic depression and that maybe in the future I will be suicidal. Thank you for sharing that, and I, I, I think sadly that is all too common. You know that future tripping, looking into the crystal ball, and never imagining that it might get better or at the very least manageable. But the fear that it's all downhill from from here, and I, I engage in that thinking too. And I think what's so important about getting help, uh, you know, whether it's a trusted friend, support group, therapy, is that we get a we get a. a a counter opinion uh, on it, uh, perspective. Sometimes even without the other person saying anything, just hearing our words come out of our mouth. Uh, you know, if we're journaling, writing, it, it's having to form it into a sentence can be so helpful to see how black and white and doom laden our thinking is. Uh, this is from the fear survey as well, filled out by a woman who calls herself the mom faking it till she kind of makes it. And she says, I fear not seeing my children go, grow old, that my parents are going to die before I can get the balls to call them on their shit. Swimming in any type of water where I can't see the bottom. Oh my God, that's such a good one. Oh, the heebie-jeebies especially when your foot touches down on something that we don't know what it is, and you're like, oh, that's a skull. This is where I get killed. Uh, then I'm going to think that I'm doing a great job being a mom, and then my kids are going to grow up, and I'll hear them on a podcast like this about how awful their mom is. Well, they're, they're my guest next week, so prepare. Buckle up. Then I'm going to get a tick and not notice it, and then get Lyme disease and waste a year or more of my life bedridden, from a dumb little bug. Yeah, man, Lyme disease is fucking serious. There's a documentary about Kathleen Hanna, uh, the uh, musician, artist. Uh, it's really good. I can't remember what the name of it is, but she had Lyme disease for years and it went undiagnosed. Uh, yeah, you should definitely check that, that documentary out. 
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I'm a huge fan of uh, online therapy and BetterHelp in particular. I've been using them for, what, seven years? Something like that. And um, it's, it's uh, we were talking about perspective. And I get perspective adjustments when I, when I go to therapy. Uh, sometimes I don't know I'm getting into the black and white thinking, or I don't know that my battery needs charging. And self-care is super, super important. And if we're not kind of in our body, per se, we, we don't know that we're getting drained. We just think, oh, I'm not doing enough. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And please include the slash metal part so they know you came from the podcast so that uh, they will continue to be a sponsor of this show. And then finally, this is just an excerpt from the How Have You Handled Sexual Advances uh, survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Kentucky Librarian. And uh, to the question, have you ever been manipulated or pressured into engaging in a sexual act? She writes, kind of. I was a teen in the 80s. I liked sex, but honestly, most of my early sexual experiences were with guys who pressured me into sex. I was grateful anyone knew I was alive. <laughs> oh my God, what a sentence that was. Is, I was grateful anyone... Now that should be at the first line of a Tinder profile. My mom abandoned me six months after a car accident that left me with a skull fracture. Wow. So with a lot of abandonment issues, father loss, and body dysmorphia... I was primed to be the perfect side girl. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I am here with Beth Ann Patrick Who is a... Uh... An author, a literary critic, a podcaster, a gal about town. Uh, am I am I selling you short? No, I think gal about town is just all. It's all yes. to get there. I think your next book should be called Gal About Town, <laughs> and I think you should be dressed like Annie Oakley on the on the front. Actually, I really appreciate that because my good friend Lily Barana, who also writes about mental health and uh, all kinds of things, uh, uh, is a former dancer and stripper. And so her book, I Love a Man in Uniform, which was about her own depression problems, had her in full burlesque getup um, with American flags and everything on the cover. So I'll be the Annie Oakley oh, Lily. That is, that is fantastic. <laughs> um, where do we begin? When your publicist reached out to me, uh, 
she, you know, kind of gave some broad strokes of your story. And one of the things uh, she said was that you um, were diagnosed with double depression. And I went, I've been doing this podcast for 12 years and I've never heard of double depression. What is that? So many people haven't heard of it. And Paul, it's really interesting because it's been in the DSM since the 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe they first were calling it cycling depression, but they've now renamed it double depression. And so double depression is when you start out, let's, you know, I I know no one can see my hands, but pretend here is a normal level, quote unquote, not neurodiverse level. Um, someone with cycling depression starts out lower and then dives even lower during periods of major depression. So it's a combination of chronic depression or what we call, I'll pronounce it correctly, I hope, dysthymia. Yes. Uh, and and major depressive episodes, which are clinical depression. I got you. And dysthymia is, uh, is that similar to anhedonia? You know, that is a really good question. And I was actually thinking about that the other day because I saw a reference to anhedonia. And I believe it is, but it's basically you just, you never reach that level. Again, I I hate to use the word normal. I'm trying to get away from that in my speech. But let's face it, there are lots of people who are born with a relatively stable mood. Mm -hmm. Okay, that doesn't mean they're better or worse. It just means they're different. Um, people with double depression um, always are lower from the very, very beginning. And the way they diagnose this now is often when they see someone with treatment-resistant depression. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing is working. No antidepressants are working. They do a family history to see if there's someone with bipolar syndrome in the family. Mm-hmm. And that is a clue that there can be someone with double depression really? in the family, too. Yeah. So it's got a big hereditary component. So um, let's be before we get into um, <laughs> your spiral. Wait, what else uh, <laughs> we're gonna, we're going to call it? Um, tell me about your your childhood, your life. Well, you know, I had um, a fairly stable childhood in that I had two parents who were married and stayed married. I had a sibling in the home. I grew up in a house I never wanted for food or shelter Mm -hmm. or clothing. But I also grew up in a family where I had four grandparents with different kinds of mental illness, very, very much identified. I had um, a maternal grandfather with alcoholism, a maternal grandmother who had psychotic episodes and was hospitalized, and who knows what else. Uh, My paternal grandmother had been hospitalized for postpartum depression in the 30s and was never the same after that. Mm -hmm. And her husband, my paternal grandfather, Definitely, it was a brilliant, brilliant man and scientist and inventor, but probably Asperger's slash autism, something like that. And so um, our family was different. My maternal grandmother, who was very unstable and very had lots of financial resource problems, lived with us. 
My parents had a lot of communication problems. They loved each other very much, but they did not know how to discuss things. And my father had been divorced and had um, two sons from his first marriage. And that caused a lot of psychic, emotional, and financial distress. So although I didn't want for anything material, I wanted for a lot of things in my soul. Did they uh, live with you, the half-brothers? No, they did not. They lived um, several hours away, and we would see them until I was about 12 or 13. We saw them quite a bit, but we would drive and pick them up at Mm -hmm. their mother's house and then drive to my grandmother's house where we could all have a visit. And Mm -hmm. it was just, you know, it's something I do describe a bit in the book. And it... That wouldn't have been difficult. What was difficult was my mother was quite she was she was quite angry about the whole situation about money having to go to these boys um and to me, I can't know what was in her heart. I also can't know how my father treated his sons vis-a-vis my mother, but I know that she really resented the money going out, and that as a child, when I was a child, excuse me. She talked to me about it in ways that were too mature for my understanding. And that was really painful because I thought, oh, you know, my father made this terrible mistake. You know, how could it be a mistake to get married and have children? Uh, I have no idea. He probably did the right thing by getting divorced. I don't think it was a good marriage. And um, my brothers um, were just caught in the middle of a lot of stuff. It was very, very tough. And here's the thing. I don't know if any of that would have been enough to make me depressed or distress me. But now that I know I was already at this low, that I was already a very sad um, and also very inward looking child, mm-hmm. you know, which is no surprise, right? I think I said to you a little earlier when we were speaking that depression is such a a boring kind of illness. And it is also something that makes you so solipsistic. You're always thinking about yourself because you're trying to save yourself. You're trying yes. to make sure. Such a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would have been amazed if a literary critic <laughs> did not have a childhood of examining what was what was wrong and why do I feel like I don't fit in and, you know, trying to make sense of the world. So uh, were books a refuge for you? They really were a refuge, Paul. They were something that I could disappear into. But aside from disappearing into them, I could also... Um, be in an alternate world where there were different rules and different ways that people treated each other and different kinds of relationships. I write in the book about my very difficult relationship with my my only full sibling. And I would hope that we'll be able to make progress past this. It's very, very distressing um, to her to read about this. But my point in the book is that this is what I felt like because I was ill too. I was seeing these actions. You know, maybe she was just looking for a, a friend, a playmate, whereas I saw her as being very encroaching and, and mm-hmm. difficult and something that scared me. And 
you know, you don't see things clearly when yes. you have a mental illness like this. So, so true. Um, what were some of the favorite books as a, as a kid and, and what do you think it was about them that moved you? Well, I've talked about this one before, but I just never get tired of talking about it. One of my the first books I ever owned um, through perhaps a nursery school book sale or something was the classic Harold and the Purple Crayon. And I love that book. I can't remember the author right now, but please go look it up, everyone. And it's all it is, is a boy and his purple crayon, and he's drawing squiggles and paths. And the whole book is just illustrations. And I loved that book so much, not just because of the force of the the colors of the purple, the different, because it, it was like lavender, gray, dark purple, bright purple, all of that. But the fact that he was just making his own path. And I do remember that. I remember that from childhood thinking, oh, he gets to go wherever he wants with this crayon. He doesn't have to stay within the lines. He doesn't have to follow anyone's rules. He's just doing this on his own. And I loved that. But another book, and I also think I've written about this, but it's very important to me, was called, uh, well, was called Heidi. Everyone knows Heidi by jo jo Johanna or Johanna Speary. Swiss book. And what I loved about Heidi is she gets sent up to the mountain meadows and the Alps, you know, by her parents or grandparents. And when she's up there, she's so free. You know, she can hang out with the shepherd boy. She can hang out with the goats and uh, she can have fresh milk and sunshine and, you know, Edelweiss and all of that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Um, clearly, I was also as someone born in the 60s, highly influenced by The Sound of Music. Yeah. <laughs> so that was an important book. And then it just, it kept going on and on. I mean, there wasn't Harriet the Spy, Beezus and Ramona, um, all of those classics. Right now we're having this big Judy Bloom renaissance. And so Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And of course, all of her other books, including the um, Salacious Forever, which had sex in it, actual sex. And I spent all night in a station wagon when I was 13 on a family camping trip reading that book cover to cover. <laughs> so it, it truly, truly it was me. <laughs> your, your alternate universe. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, you know, fortunately, because I was a good reader, a strong reader, an avid reader, Adults in my life, teachers, um, instructors, other people that I knew, relatives, started saying, you should try this, you should try that. And usually the things that they passed on to me were probably too adult by somebody's standards, but mm -hmm. thank God they did. My sixth grade teacher gave me James Baldwin. Wow. Yeah. If Beale Street could talk. And she knew when she read it that it was a perfect book for me. And she was right. Um, another, a camp counselor gave me Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Breakfast of Champions. What a strange book to give uh, an adolescent kid. But I was fascinated. And here's, you know, Vonnegut, of course, is so, I don't want to say, what's the word? I mean, he just tosses anything in there. We, we know that. But I was like, you can put drawings in a, an important book. You can riff on something. It doesn't have to be sentence after sentence after sentence. So that was a very early look at experimental 
um, I, I still love experimental literature. I love yeah. when people are trying to break forms and change things. I, I imagine as a literary critic, there are times that you get into a book and you're like, oh, Jesus, I can see the rest of this coming a mile away. Yes, Yes, absolutely. And I know now how to stay away from books that are going to bore me. Oh, so you aren't forced to choose the books that you review. Oh, Not that's anymore. so nice. Not anymore. Because you're I freelance. Still, yeah. I, well, I still get sometimes an editor will say, you know, I'm assigning you this one or please will you consider this one. But for the most part at this point, after over 20 years of, of book reviewing, I am given free reign a lot of the time in my choices. And um, I know that I don't like to turn down assignments very much because, you know, editors are so busy. They're so busy. They're busier than freelancers are. And that's saying a lot because we really have to hustle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I don't want to say to them, oh, no, I don't like that one. Give me another one. Um, because they just don't have a lot of time. So unless it's really like if they gave me something that really upset me in terms of politics or social justice, I might say, look, you really should move on to someone else. But I believe as a critic that if I look at a book, I'm looking at it as it is. It doesn't have to be a book that Beth Ann loves. It's wonderful when it is. But what am I looking at it for? I'm looking at it for does it fulfill its purpose? Does it actually do what the author wanted to do? And I can do that without being negative or positive. I can do that in a very balanced way. And I think a lot of the time we forget this with criticism, whether it's books, TV, movies, whatever. You do not have to love it or hate it. Sometimes you can just say, here is what it is. Decide. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh and are these books that the editor is personally working on? And does, does that complicate it for you because you want to please them? Well, when you say they're personally working on... They, they edited it themselves. Oh, no, no. Oh, okay. I'm talking about my newspaper editors or my oh, site okay. editor. Oh, okay. I no, thought not you meant a literary ed editor. No, no, gotcha. no. No, absolutely. That's In fact, that's a no-no. We, uh, as critics, are not supposed to deal with the authors or the publicists when we're reviewing a Makes book. Sense. And it's really hard sometimes because we know so many publicists and authors. Yeah. And so, you know, I've been in situations, um, this is a funny one that a friend still tells people about. Uh, she had said to me, oh, you know, we both live in D.C. Let's go out for a glass of wine. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, but maybe – you know, in a few months. And she didn't know why. And it was because I was reviewing her book ah. for Washingtonian magazine. And I didn't want to do anything that was ethically conflicting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we are now very good friends. And I probably will never be able to review her work again, but I can certainly do an interview with her. Right. You know, and so that's the uh, that that's the interesting payoff is uh, some critics like the the great Michiko Kakatani at the New York Times was known not to go to any literary parties or gatherings and things like that because she just didn't want to run into the problem of yeah. knowing the authors and not being able to look at their work. And that a makes sense. Yeah. I have so much respect for somebody that that does that. Has there ever been a, a time where you read something that you just truly did not like? 
and you couldn't hold back your criticism of it, and it made things uncomfortable for you either inside yourself or externally? Um, there's what I think I've told this story uh, before as well, but I think it's such a great one. Um, I was really upset with a Candace Bushnell novel a few years back, and it was one that clearly was targeting, clearly was targeting one of the stars of Sex and the City. Um, and they famously had a headbutting relationship. And in this novel, um, the star is sort of given the name of, I can't remember what it was exactly, Paul, but it was like Liza von Schnauzer, like something to indicate there was a large, you know, mm -hmm. nose. And it was really cruel, the book. And I did a takedown of it very carefully and said, this is why I really don't like this book. And this was just way too much ad hominem attacking and Bushnell was furious and uh, called my editor at the Washington Post and said, you know, this is not a, a good critic. I, this is an attack on my attack. That's right. And uh, my editor called and said, you know, do you have any axe to grind? And, you know, do you know her? Have you ever met? I said, no, no, no. I have nothing um, personal with her. This is me and the book. And I'm sure uh, she is still not happy about that. I'm also sure she's probably moved on, doesn't really care that much sure. anymore. But um, that was very uncomfortable for a couple of minutes because you you think, am I going to be believed? Um, and fortunately, if you try to be as ethical as possible, then you get a reputation for making sure that things are right. And we all make mistakes. Listen, I, we could do a whole different episode on my mistakes, right? But that's also how we grow. That's also how we get to a next level. And that's what I've become much more interested in in my life, especially since getting healthier and more stable is not saying, oh, look at all of this stuff that I failed at. Instead saying, how did that stuff that I might have done differently help me learn what I'm doing now? Such an important tool and so hard to grasp when we're just constantly looking inwardly in an obsessive way rather than a self-reflective note to self, let's move on. Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the biggest challenges in in life. Maybe it's not for some people. Maybe I'll just speak personally, but um, fuck, it's hard. <laughs> I, I was waiting. I was like, he's going to say something really interesting right now. And you know what? Fuck, it's hard is probably the most interesting thing because it really, really is. And people. Who everyone has challenges, and your challenges may not be of the mental, you know, health or illness variety person out there listening, but you have to know how hard it is, especially when we haven't been able to talk about it openly for so long. We have been so careful in, you know, our lifetimes to present well, you know, high achieving people who are high functioning and who, you know, try. I just got a message this morning from a dear friend from high school who said, I want to read your book, but I'm worried it'll make me really sad because I remember you as smart and cute and vivacious and, you know, all of these things. And I said, but maybe I could be both. 
maybe, I, you know, you didn't know the depressed me. You knew the self, the, the, um, the, the public facing me, but I was also a depressed person. And that's something I'm also learning to be okay with that not everyone saw all of it all the mm -hmm. time and they don't have to. I, I know my own truth. So how did, uh, when do you first remember your depression presenting itself and what did that look like? You know, I had a lot of sadness as a smaller child, a lot of, um, you know, you know, why am I crying so much? Why am I, you know, feeling um, so affected by, you know, something terrible happening in the world or whatever. But when I actually knew it was depression was definitely around puberty. Um, definitely. That's when I felt, and I say this in the book, um, like a fog between myself and everyone else. And I thought, what, what is going on? Why I, I can't get through this. It's like everyone is the plexiglass the, between yes. ourselves and our life. Yes. Thank you. That's exactly it. You know, and it, it's interesting because the title life B is not about B for Beth Ann or B because it's a better life afterwards. Life B has to do with when you go to the optometrist and they say A or B, mm. which is clearer. And um, when I started taking antidepressants for the first time in my 20s, I finally saw that the lens B was clearer and that I could see more easily. And um, that made a, that made a big difference. But even then, and this is, I'll very quickly say, this is the problem is I was taking my antidepressants. I was going to therapy. I was trying so hard to be a person who was getting better, but I knew I wasn't right. Like something was still off and no one knew what to do. I would, you know, complain about it, or at least I think I was complaining, you know, like, what are you talking about? Just just take a walk. And I would be like, no, taking a walk doesn't help my mood. It, it might help my anxiety. It might help my heart rate, but it doesn't help me feel less sad. That makes sense. And, you know, it, it, as we were talking about before we started recording is you can't isolate one issue, or I should say it's very difficult to know which animal is gnawing at you? It's a big tangled bowl of spaghetti and trying to isolate exercise or this or that and say, this is the problem. Um, what do I need to work on more? Which is why I think it's so important to throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. Um, it's so much of it is trial and error. And it's it's overwhelming. And sometimes just the idea that I need to do five things today just to get to the starting line that so many other people are born at. The the book came out of an essay that I wrote for L.com. And the in the essay, and I think this remains in the book. I, I, in fact, I know it does. I don't know why I'm saying that thinking. But it's about brushing my teeth. Brushing my teeth in the morning when I'm depressed is has so many steps to it. A person who has never un, you know, undergone that would be like, what are you talking about? You have to get up. You have to get up and brush your teeth. Okay, it's time to brush your teeth now. Pick up the toothbrush. Don't forget the toothpaste. Now you're going to do this. 
And sometimes it's, I'm still in bed and I'm still saying, go brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. And five minutes later, come on, you can do this. You can brush your teeth and take a shower and all of that. There's a lot to get through. Um, And in the middle of brushing your teeth, it's almost over with. You're almost done. Yes. You're not, you can, you can do it. You can get the top teeth. It's a lot. You can get the top teeth. Exactly. It's, it's exhausting. It takes so much energy to work through a depressed morning. It takes energy to say, I'm going to take the medication, even though today I'm having a tough time. And that's another thing I just want to say really quickly, Paul, is that I talk about this all the time on social media, especially on Twitter. I'm still there mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, at the book maven. So there are days that are bad even now, even though I have the correct medications, the correct kind of treatment, a lot of support, very good medical, familial, everything support. I still have tough times. And sometimes you know where that comes from. There's a stressor in your life or a trigger from a memory from, you know, childhood or whatever. Sometimes you just don't know. And I have learned through real trial and error that if there's going to be a bad day, I need to clear the decks. I need to do only like, you know, if there's a deadline, I will meet it but I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to work on something else. Mm -hmm. If there's something I can cancel, I'm going to cancel it. Because um, part of this is making sure you don't get too exhausted because that's when you're in real trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Realistic expectations, baby steps. uh, That that I find to be one of the biggest tools, which involves patience and self-compassion. And not projecting into the future. Oh, if this is the beginning of me giving up, it's all going to go downhill. I'm lazy. I'm this, that, that, that to me is the, the gasoline that we have control over whether or not we put it on the fire. My, my stomach is clenching just hearing you say those words because they're so familiar. And it makes me think, uh, this is one of my favorite film scenes ever is in Inglorious Bastards where they're, um, getting rid of the tapes, the movie reels, and putting out the fire with gasoline is playing. And I think that's so much what it's like, is you are putting out the fire with gasoline when you're trying to treat yourself when Mm. you've gone down. Um, That's when you need to ask for help. That's Mm. when you need to make sure that you say, look, I know this is boring. I know this is tough, but... I need that hand, like you said, that that hand that is reaching out. A, a person can't necessarily treat you if they're not a doctor. They cannot um, solve everything for you, but they can hold space for you. Yeah, and they don't need to solve it for you. In fact, if you're the person that somebody is is seeking comfort from, sometimes the best thing you can do is to just listen and, and pay attention and let them know you're there. Hold their hand on the couch. Just come over and say, hey, you don't have to say a word. You know, we can watch something on TV, you know, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. It's so simple and it's so compassionate. And, you know, it's also really frustrating for caregivers. And this is something that I hope to talk about or write about more at some point because 
I am very long married and I have a very supportive spouse and he has been through so much of this. And there are things in the book that are going to make people think, you know, why didn't he do this or why didn't he do that? And um, I think I made sure he read it. I made sure he was okay with everything I put in there. But I thought, we can't get it right all the time and caregivers can't either and, and they're not where perfect. are and where are they taught to to do all this uh i think one of the, one of the things that i have learned in trying to support somebody and and vice versa in terms of what i want you know is 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 bethann and i were talking about before we started recording one of the things that really sucks when you're at your lowest is you feel like you're going to be draining somebody or burdening somebody and so one of the things that i find helpful is if i share with somebody that i'm struggling is not them saying um, do you want me to come over? But them saying, or me saying to them, I'd really like to see you. We don't have to even talk about what's going on. Would it be okay if I brought some dinner over or we, you know, watched a movie together? And then it takes the feeling of being a burden off of them. That is so important. And as you said a minute ago, Paul, where is someone teaching this? No one is teaching no. a person, and this goes for so many different kinds of illness, how to be a caregiver. And there certainly hasn't been anyone teaching that for people who are either taking care of or spouses of or full-time friends with um, someone who's got a mental problem, a mental struggle or challenge. No. There's there's no one saying here – now. I want to say NAMI, the National Association for the Mentally Ill, does an incredible job with that kind of education. But it's you don't find out about NAMI until you have someone in your life who is very ill. You know, it's not like you enter a friendship in college and think, I'm going to make sure I take some courses with NAMI because what happens if, you know, it's like I'm going back to another blast from the past. Um Steely Dan's Any Major Dude, and that song about supporting someone when the demon is at your door, in the morning it won't be there no more. And that really touches me whenever I hear it, because thinking of these guys, you know, it's it's Walter and and, and Don, and they're in, at Bard College, and someone's feeling kind of low, and it's like, in the morning, it'll be okay, don't worry. And there's no coursework for that. At the undergraduate level. <laughs> no, no, and ironically, college is where sometimes the worst of, of mental struggles present themselves. Exactly. It is where, because you've got that freedom for the first time, you're making all of these decisions. And I actually think it would be so great if junior high and high schools would spend as much time teaching about stress and um, mental illness and inherited problems as they did on sex education and the various funny ways they do that. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a really big issue. And yes, we need to teach kids how to balance a checkbook. Well, maybe not a checkbook anymore. Those yes. are of the past. But we need to teach kids that, you know, you may meet someone who is really sad and mm -hmm. really does need your time, but you can't let your time also, you, you can't be drained. You right. can't let 
all of you be taken away. That means problems with boundaries, but that's a subject for... An- <laughs> and and that is, I think, one of the gray areas of interpersonal relationships that I think never ends in terms of um, trying to get it right, trying to recognize where do I end, where does, some, where, where does my responsibility end and somebody else's path... Uh, independent of me begin you know do i have any duties as a friend or acquaintance mm-hmm. and most importantly pay attention to my body what am i feeling is my stomach tight when i'm around this person you know how much dread am i feeling um am i anointing myself as the savior uh of them when in reality um that's that's not my job, and obviously, you know, it's different if you're a parent. That I can't imagine how complex that must be. Exactly, exactly, and it's very tough, even as an adult child, to go to a parent and say, "I am really suffering. I'm having challenges right now," and. You know, my mother now lives very close to us. She moved. I grew up in in southern New York State, and she moved down to Virginia, where we are, a few years ago. And you know, I will tell her, you know, I'm having a really tough time, and she is still in the, you know, what do you need? What can I do for you? Instead of the, you know, just coming over. And that's for many, many reasons. I'm not in any way putting blame on her. Um, but what I'm saying is it, it is difficult, you know, it's difficult as a grown up to think, oh, I still need my parent too. I still need that person to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, because I am as healthy as I am now, I can say, oh, you know, mom and I didn't make that walk date. You know, you know, sometimes it's me who cancels it or, you know, whatever. We do see each other. That's not the problem. It's that sometimes we don't deal when, well when I'm the one who's feeling weak as opposed to my sister. They have a an easier time talking together. But I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying things as clearly as I would like to, but it is um, – a very complicated issue. And that I'm glad you mentioned that because that's, I don't know about you, but one of the biggest struggles when I'm feeling my depression is it's, it's so often it's not only the absence of vitality, but the absence of clarity and yes. feeling like I can't find the right words to describe it. It's like trying to describe fog. Um, or sludge sludge and it 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 makes you uh, i should say it makes me feel like why am i even talking about it if i can't put it into words exactly and that is why for so long i never even went to anyone out of you know my inner circle uh, i lost touch with so many friends for so long and nothing they hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't done anything wrong. I just didn't know how to say right now. I am all about just making it through each day. Mm-hmm. That's all I can do right now. I don't have time to 
keep up a correspondence or do something fun. I'm not able to. And one of the really amazing things is uh, my husband has this group of friends from high school slash college that are very tight. And I felt much like an outsider with them for a long time. And it was because of the depression. It wasn't because they hated me or anything mm -hmm. like that. And this past September, um, one of one couple has a house on a lake in the Adirondacks and invited all, all 20 of us got together um, for this long weekend in the Adirondacks, it, old people raging. It was great. It was so much fun. And it was one of the first times with this group that I was totally present and not only could give love, but also feel love. Wow. That is something I really want to say to people who are depressed out there. A lot of us give a great deal. You know, I mean, I think it's, I say this in the book too, you know, Robin Williams always says the funniest people are the most depressed people because we know what it's like to feel worthless and we don't want anyone else to feel like that. Mm -hmm. So here I was able to actually feel the love coming to me instead of having that plexiglass there. Gives me chills just to talk about it. Yeah, it's an amazing feeling. Those moments, whether they're fleeting or they last for a long time, that we feel like I'm not, I'm no longer, at least for now, watching life pass me by. I'm in it. I'm in the parade. Sorry, Paul. I'm going to knock over the mic because, yes, sing it, brother. That's exactly it. Yeah. And so where do you feel like you're you're at today? Do you feel like you're in a in a space that's near what you hope it to be? Very, very close. There are things I would like to do in the future. There are things I would like to change. There is always so much to learn about the work we do to toward becoming our, I, I don't want to sound like Oprah, our best selves. <laughs> no, I, I like that term. <laughs> you know, and that is never, never ending. But I am on this path toward knowing that I'm going in the right direction and that I'm being really true to myself and treating the people around me with as I, I have my moments, we all do, but it's so, so much better. And I was telling, I had a wonderful Uber driver on the way over here and we were talking about families and all this stuff. And I said, I never would have believed that I would end up with, um, two adult daughters who love to spend time with me and my husband. We love to go That's on amazing. vacations together. It is amazing. You know, and I never, once I left home, would have thought of spending a week or two with my parents. And it wasn't because I wound up spending weeks with them. And that's another story. And, and it was fine. But, you know, actually saying, I want to go to this place with you. I want to experience it with you instead of this is family time. This is mm -hmm. an obligation. So that is one of the things that lets me know I am really on the right path. And I am really um, also on the path, as I said to you a few minutes ago before we started recording, thinking much more about talking to people about mental health and its importance and breaking the stigma. And that is not something five years ago I would have believed I'd be doing. I thought I would be publishing fiction and I don't know, 
just much more. I love the literary world. I'm very much part of it. I never want to be away from it completely, but it isn't the only thing for me anymore. That's one of the amazing things about growing and tackling our issues is a perspective we would have never imagined um, comes about. Uh, and it, I think, can be something to remind ourselves to put the crystal ball away. I would have never imagined in the year 2000 that I would be doing a podcast talking about mental health. So why would I sit and obsess about where I'm going to be 10 years from now and base my mood today on my crystal ball? But it's so tempting. It's so tempting. And I'm so glad to leave the crystal ball behind. I didn't realize, I thought that when I was thinking about the future, you know, pushing into that, that I was being proactive, that I was, you know, you're supposed to plan ahead. That's what we're told in late capitalist society. Guess what? It, it is really okay to just keep doing the next right thing. Yeah, so true. Um, let's plug, before we wrap up, uh, let's plug your podcast. It's such a fascinating well, topic. It is called Missing Pages. It is from The Podglomerate, which is a wonderful company. And uh, Missing Pages is its first fully produced um, podcast. So we launched season one last August. And we had a great time with it because Missing Pages is about scams and scandals in the publishing industry, in the book publishing industry. And so our first season was about some individual stories. For instance, Dan Mallory, who wrote as A.J. Finn, The Woman in the Window. And that book, everyone remembers the thriller because it was also made into the Kristen Bell um TV series called The Girl Across the Street from the Woman in the Window or whatever. It was mm -hmm. very fun. And the thing about uh, Dan Mallory is he was a publishing executive who lied a lot about a lot of things. And, you know, you can listen to the episode to find out about all the lies. But when we started it, it was going to be very fun and gossipy and light and salacious. And th when the producer and the engineer and I started talking about it, it's like, well, why was he lying? And he said he was lying because he had bipolar syndrome. And I said, that's not a characteristic. You know, people right. who have bipolar syndrome aren't necessarily pathological liars. Right. So let's look into this. And not that we're necessarily doing that now that we're producing season two, but we started looking at these people who had scammed other people. For instance, the uh, Instagram influencer Caroline Calloway in New York City, who is quite a case um, and, you know, wound up having to pay back a huge, almost half a million dollar advance to Random House because she never wrote the memoir she promised. And so she made the money back by opening an OnlyFans account. It's a great story. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we looked at, you know, why would someone do this? And we didn't always, you know, diagnose anyone with anything. We can't. That's not what we're there for. But it made the the season much richer. And this season, we're looking into some publishing process stuff, like what is ghostwriting? Who are ghostwriters? Why does this happen? We're looking into things like um, 
people's identities and and how it rubs up against um, literary communities like the bad art friend, you know, scandal, that kind of stuff. So I am loving this podcast. I love my team so much. Uh, shout out to everyone at the Podglomerate. And I had no idea how much I would love podcasting. It, it, that's what friends of mine told me before, as I was starting my podcast, they said, you will feel so empowered and excited. Absolutely. You don't know it until you start. No, you don't. And it it led to me actually uh, recording my own audiobook of Life B. I just did that last week. And uh, I thought, okay, uh, on with the the voice work. I'm excited about it. That's so awesome. Well, it's it's, it's really a pleasure meeting you and and getting to to talk to you. You're definitely a kindred spirit. Oh, thank you, Paul. Definitely. are You are as well. And I'm just so impressed that you've had this going for so long. And I now I have a lot of episodes to catch up on. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Beth Ann. And uh, she has a bunch of links that we include. Uh, we always include links to stuff uh, for our guests in the show notes of the podcast. So if you want to know more about her, uh, just uh, check that out. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the um, I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. And this was filled out by... um, Give me a minute. Filled out by a person, a guy who calls himself, I can't come up with one because I'm too high. Uh, Oh, we've all been there. He identifies as pansexual in his 20s. was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. How would you like to be remembered as normal? I don't want to be remembered as a consistent bipolar manic. I I don't want to be remembered as a consistent bipolar manic episode wrapped up into a 24-year-old. I just want to be known as normal. How's it feel writing that? Bad. I know nobody is, quote, normal, unquote. I just want to be normal. How would you use a time machine? I'd use it to go back in time and dot, 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 kill my mom. Before I was born, or maybe before she became a narcissistic, stuck-up jerk face. Listen, please do not use the term jerk face. This is a clean podcast, and profanity is not welcomed. Um, I'm supposed to feel great about my promotion at work, but I don't. I feel as if I don't deserve it. Even though I put in the work, and I know I deserve it, I don't actually feel that I deserve it. Isn't that amazing, the disconnect between the intellectual and the emotional? And I think that's where, what recovery is really about, is creating a, a pathway between what we intellectually know and being able to feel that. And boy, is it hard, but it is doable. How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? Unsure. I've expressed this to my wife before, and it felt good to get it out, but it didn't help the thoughts. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes. No, buddy, you are so, so not abnormal for that. Uh, Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? A little. Maybe if I knew people felt the same way in that situation, it would make it an easier transition for me. You know, if if we decide that we're going to listen to the negative voice, just give it a crack of daylight. It will find any comparison. Um, So it's like it, 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 it has to be a... And I don't mean self-reflection of, did I handle that right? Could I have done better? That's a different subject. But, you know, 
the compare and despair, if we just give that a crack of daylight, it is going to take over because it'll tell you, well, yeah, other people don't feel like frauds, but they don't work with this person or they don't work in this uh, particular field that I work in or they went to more school or they went to less school or they're making more, not making, you know, whatever. It doesn't end until we say, hey, enough. I'm turning this this radio station off because it is not serving me. This is from the love survey filled out by Berna. And they write, I love when two dogs see, see each other from a half a block away, ears perked, curious, like, is that another me? I can relate as an expat when I hear American accents in my adopted home country. American? Are you too? Uh, New York? New Jersey? Pennsylvania? Question mark. Um, those are great. Thank you for that. I'm always afraid when I'm walking Gracie. We almost always come across other other dogs, and I'm always afraid that they're going to attack her. And so I kind of pull her away, and every once in a while I'll let her sniff with another dog, but I'm always... There's some fucking psychos where I live. There's psychos everywhere. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by Alicia. Uh, she uh, only partially filled this out. She identifies as bisexual. She's 19 and says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. She does not elaborate. Um, ever been physically or emotionally abused? She writes, not sure. I had a toxic relationship with my best friend from school. We used to be really, really close, and she made me realize I was bisexual, but the relationship turned absolute shit in its later stages. After confessing that I was suicidal, she told me to kill myself. Yeah, I would say that qualifies as emotional abuse. And then tried to gaslight me into thinking she hadn't, and that I was just saying that because I was jealous of her. She tried to convince me I had a brain tumor or early onset dementia and I was remembering things wrong. Holy fuck. Any positive experiences with abusers? Uh, it sometimes feel like she was the only one who really understood me. I think that's one of the things that, that the narcissists or the gaslighter or whatever will use uh, to draw you in to control you. They can be very child. It's pretty rare that you will find a psychopath that is not charming. And, you know, whether or not your friend was a psychopath, I don't know. But, um, you know, somebody who's abusive and manipulative. She was the only other LGBT person I knew of in the extremely bigoted and religious town I grew up in. We shared the same hobbies of weird shit, which no one else was into, and had the exact same esoteric interest in shows, video games, and music. She was really the first person who ever made me feel like I was loved instead of just tolerated. We had so many funny and sweet moments and jokes together, and it's making me cry a little thinking of them now. Man, what, what a great example of the complexity of human beings and relationships. Fuck. Darkest Thoughts. I've often thought about committing suicide in front of the people who I feel have hurt me. I feel like if I do that, they won't ever 
I feel like if I do that, they won't ever be able to forget me because the trauma of witnessing my brutal death will forever leave a stain on their mind. I know this to be true from witnessing an acquaintance's suicide on a Skype call when I was about 14. Oh my God. I still feel an insane amount of guilt over this, and I hate myself for fantasizing about branding this pain on others. Darkest Secrets. I'm a self-harm addict and obsessed with the pain of cutting myself. I truly feel deserving of the pain because I see myself as a failure and believe that no one likes me. I intentionally expose my cuts to dirty and germ-filled atmospheres in hope that I'll contract sepsis and die. Boy, I'm speechless. I just want to send you a hug and some love and really hope that you, that you can find your your community so that you can feel seen and validated and, and not have to rely on tools that are unkind to you, whether it's your patterns of thoughts or self-harm, but uh, thank you for filling that out. This is from the survey uh, Sexual Abuse of Young Man or Young Male by Older Female. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself, oh, this is the same guy, uh, can't come up with something because I'm too high. He identifies as pansexual. He's in his 20s. Uh, and he writes, I was about 13 at the time. I was scrolling around the internet, as most kids my age at the time did, and got into Google Chats. It was a great escape from my depression and suicidal ideation. I met so many people with so many backgrounds and made a ridiculous amount of friends that I have the misfortune to not have contact with anymore. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I got into a group that was supposed to be mental health support. I reached out to some people and a woman who at the time I thought was 17 had messaged me. We talked for weeks. I, as a typically horny 13-year-old, started flirting with her. She flirted back. After about a week of flirting, she finally confessed to me her true age. She was a 42-year-old divorced mom. I sympathized with her as my parents divorced when I was eight and told her I understood in a way how lonely she could have been. Some more weeks passed of her trauma dumping and venting to me about how her kids are stressing her out. All I did was understand, in the parentheses, as much as a 13-year-old could, and offered condolences and comfort to her. Fast forward about two months later, and she had asked to see me. I sent her a picture of my face, just a smile, and then it all unraveled. It catapulted us into talking about sex, our sexual fantasies, and everything we've ever wanted to do. We sent pictures, explicit, and she would constantly ask me to send her pictures of my penis and my bare ass. I was amenable. I would do anything that she wanted because I just wanted to be seen as a mature man and not a 13-year-old boy, and this 42-year-old woman stoked that part of my ego. If something happened, did you ever tell anyone? I told my wife about it. We'd been getting together for about six years at that point, and I was working through a lot of trauma in the midst of trying to compartmentalize what could possibly be driving my hypersexuality. Some horribly repressed memories came up, which includes my rape at the age of 14, and I had to tell her. She was very understanding and very supportive and said she'd help me get through it. That's huge. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Anger and, sadly, sexual excitement. 
I've always had a thing for older women, and thinking about my 13-year-old boyhood being handled by a mature woman arouses me in a horribly contrite way. And this was kind of part of the theme I, I, I bailed on with last week's. I didn't bail on it, but I, I got burnt out reading the Shame and Secrets surveys. And I had mentioned before I started reading them that there was a theme of people ashamed of uh, sexual turn-ons, of um, power imbalance, that, that kind of being their turn-on. And um, this, this is one of those. So we're kind of continuing with uh, the surveys that I didn't get around to. Um, last week. And my, you know, one of my hopes is that the people are listening who filled these surveys out and they're struggling with those fantasies that, that, that you can know that you're not alone. And it's what we do with those fantasies that, that matters. Not, you know, there's no morality to what turns us on, just how we express it. Uh, do you feel any damage was done? Absolutely. I feel that it was the start of my hypersexuality and part of the reason I had a lot of issues in the beginning of my relationship. Um, let's see. Yeah, and that's that's the end of the uh, the survey. Thank you for, for filling that out. I, I appreciate that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Single Daddy 420. And about being a sex crime victim, they write, my body is a dumpster. Man, sweet and to the point. And I think so many people are like, yep, I know that feeling. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by a mere collection of cells. And they write, I love the sound of silence. I love it when all I can hear is the sound of my breath as I ponder what the day will bring. Look at you, all poetry, all fancy, in the meadow, on the countryside, meditating. Meditation is, I never look forward to doing it, but I really do believe it's helpful. And, uh, you know, if there's somebody had posted on Twitter um, and tagged me on it saying, I... I can't afford to learn meditation, you know, um, what they call TM, Transcendental Meditation, which is something that you are taught to do, and they give you a mantra that is kind of the same thing as focusing on your breath. They both serve the same purpose, and I, and I replied and said, you don't need to be taught meditation. Just sit comfortably, upright, lean against the wall, Indian style, whatever whatever you want to, cross-legged, I don't know, maybe Indian style isn't... Uh, uh, maybe that's an offensive term. I don't know. I gotta, I gotta check. I gotta go jump into social media and find out where I'm, where I'm behind the times. But just focusing on your breath, and your mind's gonna wander, and just bring it back. Do it twice a day for twenty minutes, and it sure doesn't hurt to try. There's also some good meditation apps out there. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Life uh, from Big Green Eyes, and. Uh, she identifies as straight and qualifies, saying, I have to admit I'm super attracted to women's breasts and lesbian porn, even though I've never acted on it, but I have carried on a phone relationship with another woman and, quote, fell in love, unquote. She identifies, she's in her 40s, and about her environment she was raised in, she writes, totally chaotic, a total fucking shit show. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. 
She writes, my innocence was stolen from me. As far as I can remember, uh, I was around five years old. I was sexually abused for 12 years until I was 17 by my mother's first husband. In the end, he only ended up getting six months in jail and probation until I turned 21. And I guess because of when it happened in the mid-90s, he is no longer on the National Sex Offender Registry. That is frightening. She uh, has been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, Along with being molested came physical beatings, mental and emotional abuse, and, quote, minor torture, unquote, like kneeling on rice at times and sometimes for hours. I would not call that minor torture. Any positive experiences with abusers? There are no positive experiences I can remember because I've tried to block most of my childhood out. All of a sudden, I'm Canadian. Ah, hey, you're blocking, you're blocking your childhood out. Uh, darkest thoughts. I hate that I eventually started to like when I was being molested. I would sometimes act like it would feel good or try to act sexy so that he would buy me more things and not treat me like shit. But the more I acted like I liked it, he would treat my brother even worse than he did to begin with. You know, and I, and, I, and I think that speaks to the fact that the sexual violation, it, it's really not about the sex. It's about the power. And, yeah. If you've never listened to the episode with Leah McCord, she talks about um, when she was being um, molested by her father. I think it started when she was around 11 or 12. And... She said for years she blamed herself um, for later initiating it with him. And after enough therapy and recovery, she realized, no, that's on the adult. You know, when you're, when you're sexualizing a child and grooming them, that child is, is not responsible for uh, you know, making the decision to initiate with, with the adult um, and our bodies. And our soul can experience two completely different things at the same time. And it's such a mind fuck because we tell ourselves, oh, th- then I, I deserve it because I felt pleasure from it. Darkest secrets. I love to create fantasy with men other than my soulmate. It's like playing house, but over the phone or computer. I love it when they tell me that they love me and think of me when they are fucking someone else. I love to sneak around over the phone, and I fucking love phone sex. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I love to create fantasy relationships with men over the phone and, quote, fall in love. I love to role play over the phone. I love it when they tell me they love me and they, oh, she's already written that. Uh, I love keeping a secret from my partner. I love to role play as daddy's little girl or as a naughty assistant hiding under your desk, sucking your dick while you're on a business call. All that shit makes me feel so fucking filthy and ashamed of myself. I feel like a fucking whore and I hate myself for liking these things. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? You know, and I just want to say on on that one, you know, the... The hiding it from your partner, to me, that that's that's the important issue in this. You know, you getting off on what you're getting off on, that, to me, that's that's not the issue. It the fact that you're 
You know what I'm saying. I don't need to explain. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mother to kill herself while I watch her do it because I hate her. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I didn't hate my mother or anyone. Hate is such a strong, hurtful word. I hate liars, and I wish that no one would ever lie to me again. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared my childhood story with several people over the years, but I hardly do anymore because I feel after I do, they start to treat me like a fragile child and not the adult that I am. How do you feel after writing these things down? It always feels good to freely write things down because most of the time I feel that no one understands me. I think there are so many people who do and will understand you if you can just find them. Your family is out there. Your emotional family is out there. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I would tell them that everything is going to be okay and that they will find their special person that they will love for who they are and not judge them. You can heal and survive from your past transgressions. You can be loved! Exclamation point. Thank you for filling that out. This is from the Love Survey. This is filled out by the Habsburg Jaw. No idea what any of that means, but I'm a fan. I love that my cat cuddles harder when she hears my alarm go off. This next one I do not get. I love strong, shitty coffee. I I get I love strong coffee, but I guess you would mean what other people consider shitty coffee. Uh, I love when it's warm enough for me to sit in the sunroom with a book or journal. I love my manic days when I get a little taste of the person I could be if I were, quote, normal, unquote. I love that I'm lucky enough to have a partner who is supportive and consistent regardless of my woes. And consistency is so huge, man. I think for some of us who have been lost in relationships that are up and down, consistency is definitely something to consider because consistency is really a a a form of safety. It's like it it if somebody's incredibly abusive and then incredibly nice, you know, it's not like you're just going to go, well, you know, ultimately what's the tally? Is it above 0 or below 0? It's like no, you deserve consistency, not perfection, but consistency. I love being a voyeur of strangers' happy moments. I love, I love that one too. I love when my mind slows down enough to allow me the small pleasures of a walk, the array of gorgeous ferns that graze my shoes, the sounds of distant birds chatting, the sun peeking through evergreen branches to touch my skin, and being left feeling like Mother Nature gave me a nurturing hug. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Julia. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My 14-year-old, uh, 14 years older foster brother did some stuff until I was six or seven. I don't remember it really well, just some snippets. I remember laying on a desk in his room and him lifting my skirt and doing stuff. I thought that it was a game, so I wasn't scared or anything. It was just something secret. He moved out and never came to visit again. 
My mother told me a few months ago that my big sister told her when she was about 11 years old that my brother tried to get her naked. That was when she never let any of her five children alone with him again. That's when I remembered the stuff he did to me, but I didn't tell my brother. I remember being confused as a child because my siblings wouldn't let me play with him anymore. I thought they were mean to him. Any positive experiences with abusers? Oh, and she, uh, she is not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Um, my father still loves me more than he loves all my siblings, and I resent him for that. He didn't treat some of my siblings very well, and he is an ignorant husband to my mother. I have very little respect for him, but I'm trying not to show it because I'm also scared of him. Darkest thoughts. I get turned on by imagining myself, not anybody else, as a little girl getting abused by a grown man. Darkest secrets. When I was 14, I sat next to an older schoolmate on a long car drive, and I tried to fall asleep when he took my hand and put it on his crotch and started groping me. I was too scared to say anything and pretended to sleep, but I know he knew that I was just pretending. He also once groped me between my legs when we were at a swimming pool in front of all my schoolmates. Nobody noticed, and I didn't tell anyone. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Um, since I was in kindergarten, I only fantasized about getting abused and raped. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell the people that I don't, that I don't know really well that I'm fucking scared of them because I feel worthless and weak and I feel like they all dislike me and that that's the reason why I'm so weirdly closed up and shy. Why? Because. What, if anything, do you wish for? I would like to know what it feels like to be loved by my birth parents. I grew up in a foster family and always wonder if it makes a big difference. But then again, I think some people aren't loved by their birth parents as well. Have you shared these things with others? Never. I'm too ashamed. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good, because I know you won't judge me. I won't. Your, your, your survey moved me and um i mean i don't really read surveys that i don't react to emotionally one one way or the other um and i feel for you i feel for you and i really hope you can you can find a new family that can support you and so that you can get in touch with that part of yourself that uh it's still there that little spark of authenticity and kindness but it's hard when there's just all trauma piled on top of it uh and then finally this is a happy moment filled out by mix low um who uh they identify as trans non-binary and they write I wrote in a few months ago and wanted to give an update. Last time I wrote, also a happy moment survey, it was shortly after my wife had a miscarriage. While that event was incredibly sad and traumatizing, it ultimately brought us closer together, hence the happy moment. Now, we just got back from our baby moon, uh, parentheses, uh, a pre-baby trip millennials <laughs> invented for the internet. My wife is seven months pregnant and we expect our first little one in early August. After the miscarriage, I felt like the support we provided each other after losing a baby brought us closer than ever. But I was wrong. Preparing to have a child, a first for us both, has been the best experience yet. 
I grew up in a traumatic environment and wasn't sure I'd ever really want to be a parent. Now I'm so excited I can barely contain it. It's all I talk about. I just can't wait to see what the future brings to us. After being a longtime listener and struggling with my own mental health for so long, it's nice to share a happy moment. Just wanted to share this update with you. I love it. I love, and the, and, and the part of that that I really find, I'm, I'm happy for you that, uh, that the, the pregnancy is going well, but the thing that really fucking fires me up about that is that something shitty that happened, there was a byproduct of that that was good, which it brought you closer together because a lot of times that'll drive couples apart. It forces you to uh, communicate or not communicate. You know, you're, it, it's very rare. I think that something like that happens and the relationship doesn't change for the better or for the worse. And I'm just so stoked. Do we bring skateboarders into this? So, so happy to hear that it strengthened your bond with your, with your partner. That's really beautiful. I hope uh, you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never, ever think that you're not alone because you are not. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.